This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm host of the show. And I haven't, haven't posted a podcast for probably two months because I've been on the road uh, taking students to Europe and going to conferences, but I'm excited to be back. Uh, and I'm particularly excited to be back to talk about a very interesting book uh, titled Yasinovich Concentration Camp, An Unfinished Past. Uh, edited by Andriana Bencic-Kuznar, Daniela Lucic, and Stipe Odak. And just by hearing me pronounce those names, you are going to recognize that my Croatian is non-existent. And so I will apologize in advance both to Stipe and to our listeners when I mispronounce something. Um, but it's well worth hearing the mispronunciations because this is a really interesting and important book. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to Stipe with, about it, uh, and I'll let him explain why it's so important. So I'll just say, Stipe, thanks for joining us, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you for having me, Kelly. It's uh, wonderful to be here. So I start out by asking uh, guests to talk a little, tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, and in our case, since your co-editors are not with us, uh, Stipe, if you could introduce yourself to us and then say a little bit about your co-editors. Sure. So my name is Tipe Odak. Uh, my background is a little bit specific. I studied theology and religious studies and then sociology and comparative literature in Zagreb. And then later went on uh, to finish a PhD in political and social sciences. Coincidentally, two other co-editors, so that will be Daniela Lucic and Andriana uh, Kuznar, Benjic Kuznar, were my colleagues. So we studied uh, sociology together in Zagreb and then continued to work together. And we came in touch with the subject of Yesenovats towards the end of our master studies. So that was uh, Andriana and me at the time. We were invited by the director of Yesenovats Memorial Site at that time to uh, do some research basically at the museum. And the issue was uh, quite peculiar. So the, the, the people who were visiting sometimes demanded to see more horrors. They thought that the museum does not represent the history in a truthful way and that they would prefer to see more weapons, the images of massacred bodies, um, uh, uniforms, war uniforms, and so on and so on, which was uh, strange in view of new developments in museological representation, but it was also uh, uh, ethically problematic, and we'll speak probably about this later, in view of a particular history of Yesenovats, where the museological representations were used as a part of propaganda during the war in the former Yugoslavia. So this was the first time we came in touch with uh, the subject in a professional way. Of course, this was before uh, taught in uh, history classes and uh, even some uh, university classes that we attended. And then we continued on and the subjects changed over time. So at some point, we also collaborated with uh, people from uh, other uh, museological sites in Europe in imagining uh, how the museological representation of uh, the Holocaust 
should develop in future, uh, especially at that time, the development of augmented reality uh, was quite in vogue. And that, again, also became relevant to Yesenovitz uh, because the site, the original site, was bombed in uh, March and April um, 45. And then even later, people from surrounding villages used the the remnants of the site for as a construction material for the houses. So there was almost nothing left, which creates a strange sensation among the people that the site is too beautiful for what it represents. And uh, one of the possibilities uh, or suggestions that some of the visitors uh, were giving was to reconstruct the, the places of torture, which again opens many ethical questions. So we want to avoid that. And uh, one, the, one of the ways that we could imagine um, going forward was to use this augmented theology, uh, technology, excuse me, to represent what the site looked like at the time while at the same time reminding visitors that there's a difference uh, now. And uh, also there was educational point that we wanted to send, stating that the last phase of um, genocidal ideology is not the genocide itself, but covering the traces of genocide, which was quite visible uh, in the case of Yasenovats. So that was the original uh, situation. And then later we faced uh, some additional problems. And one of them was a new wave of revisionism surrounding uh, the Asenovat site. And uh, also under quotation, birth of new research institutions, uh, which were uh, publishing uh, quasi-academic works on both sides. So one side was uh, exaggerating uh, the uh, the situation of Yasenovats. Again, this should be a qualified statement because it's very difficult to exaggerate the side of uh, such terror. But what I mean by that is that they were using um, the data uh, from uh, Yugoslav, especially late Yugoslav period, uh, which was a part really of uh, propaganda during the war. So there was one side and another side, partially as a reaction, uh, was minimizing the, the horrors of Yesenovats. Inspiration behind the book was to bring together scholars from different countries, different fields, but scholars with uh, reputation who would really insist on uh, data-driven research, empirically grounded research, which can present uh, truthfully uh, the, the story and, of, and history of Yesenovats, and which can help, in a way, to bring uh, different perspectives together, but which can also serve as a repository of data, which people can use in response to uh, revisionist tendencies that they face. Uh, so that's that's the, the story of a book, and we are happy, really, that it's been published now. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the Asenovitz, but most are not. So can you talk a little bit about what this site was and what role it played in the Second World War? Sure. So first, maybe I should geographically place Yesenovats. Um, so at that time, it was the biggest concentration camp uh, in so-called independent state of Croatia. So now we are speaking about the period from 41 to 45, of course, a period of the Second World War. And the independent state of Croatia was an allied state with uh, Germany and Italy. So the famous um, Croatian historian Ivo Goldstein used these uh, terms under quotation marks, uh, stating that it was neither independent, neither Croatian, since it was in nature uh, not really independent. So it really depended a lot on Italy and, uh, uh, and uh, Germany. 
And uh, it was not, again, uh, entirely creation, because, of course, it was not a democratically elected uh, government. So it comprised the territory of currently Republic of Croatia, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, parts of what is today Republic of Serbia, minus uh, the Istria, that's a region in Croatia, and co some parts of Croatian coastline, which are then given to, to Italy. So, so we are there. This is the geographic space. So Yasenovac was not the oldest uh, concentration camp uh, in this country, but it was certainly the biggest. And later it became a symbol uh, used for all concentration camps in uh, this uh, large territory. And this sometimes creates confusion, because sometimes people would speak about Yasenovac's victims, but under that name, they would uh, uh, include all the victims of all concentration camps in this territory, right? So that's why it was an extremely powerful sim uh, symbol. It will become clear why in a minute. So also, uh, it, was a, it was not a single uh, geographical spot. In reality, it, was, it, it comprises five uh, sites. So first two were operating really in a relatively short period from August to November uh, 1941. And then uh, the, the people who survived were then sent to uh, camp number three called Brickwork, which is generally associated with the, the, the name Yasenovitz. And then there was also a tannery and uh, another site uh, placed in what is currently Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina in Stara Gradiška. So there was this complex set of camps, which were all called uh, Yasenovac's concentration. Which role it played? Uh, so very early after uh, their founding, uh, the, the leaders of independent state of Croatia introduced uh, racial laws uh, based uh, on the racial laws, of course, in Germany, which targeted specifically Jewish and Roma population, all non-Aryans, but practically Jewish, Roma, and Sinti population um, uh, in, in, the, in these territories. And aside from that, uh, Serbs uh, were not considered uh, uh, non-Aryan uh, race. They were not considered directly targeted by, by these um, laws. They were Slavs, but not neither Jews nor Romans. So they were then seen mostly as political enemy within. Uh, and then uh, many of them, the majority of victims in uh, Yesenovac's concentration camps were of Serbian ethnicity. So those three groups were systematically targeted. And aside from them, there were other enemies who were seen as, again, political enemies. Those were Croats in opposition, also significant uh, number of victims were of this ethnicity. There were also uh, some uh, smaller ethnicities who lived in these territories, but were also seen as a target. For instance, some who belonged to religious minorities. It's important to note that the camp was not controlled by Germans, uh, as some other camps in the in Europe were, even outside the German territory. This was under local control. And another difference uh, to uh, concentration camps in Germany was the way it was organized. So it was not just a concentration camp; it was also a labor camp and extermination camp. And uh, Natasha Matausic, one of the people who contributed to this book, described it in comparison to German industrial machinery of killing, using that metaphor, as a manufacturer of uh, all evils. And it was truly a horrific uh, place, uh, full of uh, sadistic stories uh, and, and really torturous uh, killings on a daily basis. The number of victims of Yasenovitz concentration camp, as we might discuss later, 
was always uh, a matter of debate. But uh, the Senovitz Memorial site institution uh, that has now organized on the place of the spot of the former concentration camp did an important research project uh, in 2000s. And uh, currently they have a list of all victims' names, which is uh, 83,145, I believe. Uh, which is not complete list, but that's the starting point. And the generally uh, ac serious academic approximations go so between this lowest number of 83,000 to 100 or 110, 120,000 of victims, mostly converging around 90,000, 100,000 victims. So already enormous number in itself. So Yasenovitz concentration camp later during the Yugoslav period uh, of the communist government, symbol in a way of national unity. Why was this important? Uh, because you, Yugoslav government at the time uh, was inspired by this ideology of brotherhood, brotherhood and unity. So the idea was to avoid the repetition of these, uh, they call it uh, fratricidal crimes, internecine crimes uh, between the ethnicities who were culturally close, speaking, well, basically the same language, sharing the same mentality. And starting from the suffering, they wanted to build something common, something together. So in that sense, it was uh, strongly discouraged or even impossible to speak about the crimes of one ethnicity over another. So the, the weak were Yugoslav people and the enemy were fascists and their collaborators. So this was the official denomination. And, and this was somehow manifested also in organization of the museum. So the symbol architectural symbol of this site became a stone flower, which is enormous concrete building by Bogdan Bogdanovich. And, and it is really a stone flower. Uh, it, it symbolizes something that has roots deep down in ground, in suffering, in blood, in terror, but it's open towards uh, the sky, towards a new future. So the orientation was was really towards future. So starting from this deep suffering, towards some building better, uh, well, in that time, communist future. Later on, in uh, uh, late eighties, so especially after eighty seven, the narrative changed significantly. So one uh, visit from. Uh, uh, Academy of Sciences from Belgrade was organized in 87. And the decision was brought to uh, change the organization of the museum and uh, represent it more as, as a site of deepest uh, atrocity. So there was the time when these real horrific, authentic but horrific images of massacred bodies, movies, uh, and all the rest was presented in the museum. Uh, usually all the children from uh, these territories of Yugoslavia at some point were obliged to visit this as a part of school visit. And also a mobile exhibition was organized titled The Death Are Opening the Eyes of the Living, which was especially uh, visiting the, the military barracks. And then this became a huge issue later uh, during a war because uh, some people testified that they saw this suffering. And mind you, at the time, the narrative changed significantly. The suffering was not the suffering of Yugoslav people or all ethnicities. It was in the, in the, in the eyes of the propagandists, the Serbian suffering. And the perpetrators were then Croats. So the people who saw the exhibition would say, I saw what happened and I reacted preemptively to stop another genocide. So the muse museum and the museological exhibition itself 
was used for propaganda purposes, and then it was uh, fueling different crimes during a period uh, from 91 to 95. Then also during the war, the museum was under occupation of Yugoslav National Army, was pillaged, and uh, all, all the property, all the books, all the exhibition was moved to Banja Luka. It was only later uh, brought back uh, to creation, and then it was finally decided that the different form of exhibition, permanent exhibition, should be organized. And in 2005, the, the work started, and the new exhibition focuses on the victims. Uh, the, the, the project wanted to uh, show that the victims are not just a number. Those were people with specific histories, specific personalities uh, who lived again in, in, in their communities. So the idea was to give them give back the voice to the victims. So it's really focusing on that uh, historical context, of course. Uh, there's also part which represent the resistance in the camp. Uh, we have truly fascinating stories sometimes, uh, for instance, of women who, who wrote a, a cookbook of recipes while they were imprisoned there. And this is uh, uh, astonishing in the way the book was uh, written uh, during a period of starvation, and they saw it uh, as a form of resistance. So the women would get together and uh, Think about recipes. Mind you, the paper is not readily available in a camp. It needs to be stolen. And again, if if you're caught uh, writing this, you would be immediately executed. Uh, so this was seen as a form of resistance, but also keeping the heritage, because the recipes used to be transmitted from uh, mother to daughter and so on and so on, especially in older societies. So th there was some form of importance of guarding that tradition. So they, they would write a cookbook together. Then uh, they, they, there were souvenirs, for instance, one uh, Malin made, uh, made a ring for his friend. Uh, both of them were working, forced to work. And the ring was, of course, uh, hidden. Inside the ring, uh, there's an inscription, this also will pass one day. So there were those elements of hope, uh, strange hope in face of nothingness, uh, resistance. And then again, uh, inmates try to resist uh, the, the impression. So in uh, 45, uh, the, the, the camp was that way also liberated. So the focus was a lot played this and then much less on on truly the weapons on destruction there's a small part of exhibition which shows them but this is not certainly not in in the focus so this new exhibition was partially well accepted and then again partially uh, criticized uh, by some people who saw it as postmodernist attempt to uh, negate the horrors of the history uh, or by some as revisionist attempts. Uh, the one part, of course, of the project was to find a name of all victims by names. So again, to uh, to the, the book was published with all the names of all victims. It could be found. Of course, not all the names uh, could be found, but those that could uh, were written in a book. And the book name, as I mentioned before, with uh, a little bit more above 83,000 uh, names, which was much less than official uh, propaganda in Yugoslavia, which was uh, partially developed uh, in attempt to reinforce the sense of suffering. And again, the, 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 the enormous evil that happened during this period, which can be a source of inspiration for future generation, and partially uh, as a way of uh, asking uh, monetary uh, reparation from uh, Germany. So some listeners probably know in uh, 46, there was a conference in Paris organized around the question of reparation. And Yugoslavia uh, at that time 
said that the victims of uh, in, in this territory of Yugoslavia amounted to 1.7 million. And this number we later discovered uh, was uh, uh, the estimation by uh, Vlade Tavučković, who was working at the statistical office, and he made an estimation of demographic loss losses, so which are different from real victim losses. Why they're different? Because there he included also the decline in birth rate. Uh, so all everything that contributed uh, to to um, kind of less population that one would expect, including people who were killed, but not only people who were killed, right? In practice, this is an important number to know because people, for instance, who leave the country or uh, people who couldn't have children uh, are also an important element in social life. Of course, we need to know this, but these were not meant to be the, 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 the actual victims killed uh, on these territories. Nonetheless, the number was used during this conference, later became um, quoted in uh, encyclopedias, official publication in Yugoslavia. And another thing that was important uh, as, as, as a symbol was uh, 700,000 victims of Yasenovats. Mm -hmm. This almost became a sacrosanct number, which simply symbolized this enormous suffering, which we know now is not factually uh, through. So when the last exhibition of Yasenovats, uh, permanent exhibition of Yasenovats was made uh, with this number, which is much less than this one used before, some people also saw it as a revisionist attempt. And then now we are here today when all these things I just presented, I know they can be very confusing to hear all this because Yasenovats is really specific site in this respect, which has not only the original history of, of terror, but also the history of collective memory around it, a history of propaganda around it, an additional traumatic history of the uh, ex-Yugoslav wars, which were linked to previous uh, wars. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. That's a wonderful summary of, of the history of the, the camp, but also of the the ways in which the memory of the camp has been used. And you, you talked a lot about numbering. Um, your book divides this into three parts, naming, numbering, and narrating. Um, I wonder if you could say something about the naming part. What are the, how, how have people described this? I'm, I'm particularly struck by descriptions of this as something more than genocide. So, so how have they described what happened at Yasenovitz and and around it, um, and what are the stakes with that? Mm -hmm. Maybe to make one step back, yeah. you know, and to to explain just the division of of the book. Yeah, please. You know, describing, uh, naming, and counting. So we uh, started with the premise that genocide in itself is a crime which escapes understanding to some degree, and especially it escapes representation. It's, it's, it's linked to this idea of radical evil, which simply cannot, in full at least, be properly represented. So people usually develop strategies of representing uh, those horrible events. One strategy is doing historical research, right? That's what most of us do. But there are also different strategies uh, around us. So one of them is giving a name to a crime. So genocide, of course, uh, is an important term 
that was developed to describe these unimaginable events. Uh, for a long time, the, the Holocaust and all these atrocities that happened during World War War, World War II were seen as a crime without name. So there was a necessity to create a name for this deep suffering. Linked to this is history of Yasinovats, which was a site of uh, genocidal execution. But then uh, there, there were also attempts to represent this history as something even beyond that, sometimes used also for political purposes. So you mentioned, for instance, the, at the time president of uh, Republika Srpska, Again, maybe a little point of clarification. The Republika Srpska is not the same uh, thing as Republic of Serbia. Republic of Srpska is a federal entity of Bosnia, of state of Bosnia and Herzegovina, right? So one part is Republic of Srpska, another part is Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is again, might be a misnomer because the Federation is on the lower level than the state. And the third part is Bačko district. So Republic of Srpska uh, is a place where this uh, one part of former concentration camp is currently placed. And it's the, the, the events, memorial events are organized every year, which is fine, all fine in itself. It becomes problematic when this history of suffering is used for uh, political purposes of today. So uh, Željka Cvijanović wanted to say that Jasenovac as a place of Serbian suffering was not genocide, but something even more than a genocide that exceeds all other forms of suffering. It's so unimaginable. Uh, and then this is linked to the idea that the only protector against the new suffering is Republic of Srpska. And this again was the idea uh, proposed on numerous occasions by uh, an, another important politician from Republic of Srpska, Milorad Dodik. At the same time, very often, this uh, enormous, very truly enormous suffering of Serbian population and uh, uh, other ethnicities as well during World War II, in Republic of Srpska especially, is used as a way of not speaking about crimes, especially genocide in Srebrenica that happened in 1995. So this strategy of naming was, was uh, in a way political strategy to, to, to convey the idea that the current political institutions are the main protectors of Serbian people in this territory, and they have legitimacy to speak uh, 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 about suffering because so many people suffered and they suffered something even more than a genocide. On the other hand, among the revisions, there was attempts and their ongoing attempts to represent the events surrounding Yasenovac, not as genocide, but as, a, as simply a reasonable political decisions. Uh, against uh, enemies of the uh, of the state at the time, uh, some of them even uh, go to the length of stating that the uh, the site was not even the place of execution. It was to the to a degree a place where they could organize uh, movie nights, um, sports, and recreation. So place of relatively comfortable living. So this attempt of avoiding at all costs the, the name genocide is also an attempt to whitewash the history. So that's the naming part and, and struggles around this. And the our listeners will certainly know and understand that there's always this attempt to appropriate the word genocide and sometimes or most frequently the word Holocaust for, for other forms of suffering. But in an attempt to say, yeah, we also have a legitimacy to speak uh, about pain, about collective trauma, so, so naming. Then the second strategy of representing this enormous um, event uh, 
is uh, of course through through numbers if the suffering is be, escapes understanding then perhaps we can put a number on it we might come closer to to some form of proper representation so that's that's also another reason why the numbers were were so important in this context and uh, we also mentioned the number 700,000. It's already in a number which is easy to remember, unlike, for instance, 83,145. So it beca became a symbolic number. In a way, uh, for some people, it did not represent exact number of victims, but it just represents the symbol of enormous suffering, which simply couldn't be touched. Uh, it, the, the, the number became less a number itself, mathematical instrument, it simply became a cognitive instrument, a cognitive symbol, right? And then on another hand, of course, on the revisionist side, we see a strong attempts to minimize the numbers of people who suffered there. And then they would go uh, to the length of saying, oh, just maybe 2,000 people were suffering. Of course, both of these strategies are problematic from historical point of view, but they're also problematic from social uh, and in, in a way political uh, point of view because they create mistrust. And once when all this suffering uh, and the, the numbers became symbolic, it becomes almost impossible to debate the symbols. Because negotiating symbols and touching the symbols is already seen as an insult. So that's why the naming uh, is also something that we definitely wanted to talk about. And then the third strategy of uh, representing uh, genocidal crimes is through descriptions. So usually the strategies here um, revolve around attempts to represent the most atrocious uh, forms of pathological tortures that one can imagine. Right? Some of them were historically accurate, and some of them, which are also linked to the history of Yasenovats, we we now histor historians really have consensus around this were not accurate. And one, again, very famous story was uh, this sad story about making soap from human remains, which is said to be done in uh, this uh, territory of Stara Gradishka, for which we don't really have historical evidence. But the attempt here is to come up with something memorable, something which shocks people, something which creates emotional reaction also as a way of representing something which escapes understanding in itself. And as I mentioned before, revisionist attempts go in a completely other direction. Oh no, this camp was not really the place of suffering. Yeah, it was a labor camp. It was imprisonment, but relatively comfortable one. So let us describe you what happened there. There was this uh, movie uh, presented there. There was a visit of Red Cross, uh, which uh, saw relatively comfortable conditions at that time and so on and so on. So the description of, of the events uh, surrounding Yasenovats and that happened in Yasenovats is also a, a battlefield uh, of, of arguments and, well, not not just arguments, I must say, also arguments under quotation marks, because some of these are clearly not historically based statements. So finally, we decided to organize the book uh, in, in those three sections, uh, which deal with those three strategies of speaking uh, about the crimes that took place uh, between 41 and 45 in uh, these locations. There's a name that, that plays a role in the book that you haven't mentioned this, and I believe that's Bleiborg, I believe, um, if I've got that right. Um, what, how have people tried to, so what is that? What does it represent anyway? What does it stand in for? And how have people tried to use that as a narrative strategy for, um, in order to um, cement kinds of identities or stories that they tell about the past? 
Mm-hmm. So Bleiburg uh, in itself uh, is geographical location, is, uh, is simply a city in Austria, but it's actually a symbol for a set of events uh, related to May 45, which make the whole story about World War II in the, these territories of ex-Yugoslavia extremely complicated to comprehend. So at the end of the war, the army, together uh, with some uh, militia groups from from different territories, so some from Bosnia and Herzegovina, some from uh, Serbia, some from Slovenia, uh, some from Montenegro, withdrew also together with a, a part of civilian population to this city called Bleiburg which is at the territory of uh, uh, a Republic of Austria nowadays. And they surrendered eventually to Allied forces. The winning side on the territory of Yugoslavia were uh, partisans under the leadership of of Tito, which then became uh, Yugoslav uh, army. So what happened later is that uh, British uh, um, leadership decided to repatriate all these people back to the country itself and then uh, give them basically uh, as prisoners to Yugoslav army. So that's the generally the framework, historical framework of events. So what happened later were in a part revenge killings uh, and then massacres over uh, uh, not only former army members, but also civilians. So I just spoke before about the history of uh, Yasenovac and somehow the numbers of people who killed there. So Bleiburg uh, was another enormous suffering which stretches from these initial events of surrender all up to uh, the, the the time when many of these people came home. So the this created another controversy. Why? Because during the period of communist Yugoslavia, it was practically impossible to speak about these events because those included the crimes of the regime. So until very late, basically, until the fall of Yugoslavia, these events survived almost exclusively in collective memory. There were some publications about these events in immigration, but it was simply impossible to have books about them written uh, and published in, in, in Yugoslavia. So why is this important? Because to, to a certain degree, there were, there were no research being done, serious research being done for quite a long period of time. And second thing, this was neuralgic point for many people. So now, when we, when the research about Bleiburg started to be developed later, after the, the independence, the numbers were also controversial. So nowadays, most researchers converge around the numbers between seven, around 70, 80,000 of people who died, or some approximations grow from 50 to 60. So the numbers are not very clear. And the majority of victims in this case were of Croatian ethnicity this time. So why is this important? At one point when Yasenovac became appropriated as the place of almost exclusively or predominantly place of Serbian suffering, Bleiburg was developed as another symbolic place of Croatian suffering. And then it was shrouded also in religious language. So the Bleiburg is also known in Croatian language as a way of the cross. So the, these, these events were seen as a way of the cross. So from surrender, uh, torture, until some of them came home and many of them died. So this is the setting that we have. And then those two symbols of suffering were sometimes used 
uh, again, also in non-academic literature, as a way of contradict each other. So people would say, oh, you see, the Yasenovats was not first minimizing the suffering of Yasenovats. Yasenovats was not such a big form of suffering, whereas Pleiburg was. And both sides were guilty of these enormous crimes, which again, they would say the genocide took place in both cases, depending which publications you're reading. So that's one event. And then on another side, they also attempt to say, yeah, but these crimes and these forms of suffering are not exactly the same forms of suffering, because one form of suffering took place uh, uh, during a regime which introduced racial laws and implemented them during four years. And another form of suffering, in this case, Bleiburg, was a mixture of revenge killings, so linked to the suffering of Yasenovats, and then some chaos in the army that was not well organized, especially after the war. So even nowadays, those two toponyms represent two sets of different narratives, uh, two sets of different emotions, and uh, unfortunately also competitive victimhood. So one of the goals of the book, Ken, and uh, 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 Vladimir Geiger and Tina Grachek wrote a great article about this, was finally to shed some empirical lights on these events and uh, we somehow tried to 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 help people to converge uh, around some form of approximation first how many victims took place but also about timeline of events and why uh causality of events why some of these events took place so that's basically in, in a nutshell uh, the history of Bleiburg, which is far more complex than what I just said now, but it, it really represents something important in collective memory to a degree that very often even nowadays in comments after the, the random articles that you will uh, see in publications in these regions, you will often see these competitions between Yasenovats and Bleiburg uh, what happened, when, who suffered more, and so on and so on. So, as, as, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, this is a region about which many people, certainly in the United States, but I think globally, um, don't know very much, and one in which 30 years, well, not quite 30 years ago, but 25 years ago, was much more visible in the public consciousness, and I think it has receded. So I guess my first question about this is, is why do you think that what happened in the Balkans during the Second World War is so much less understood than what happened in Poland or Ukraine or Belarus or wherever? Why? Um, and what can, and then along with that, what can we learn from events and the memory of events in the Balkans that will help us better understand how to wrestle with these issues historically and and politically. Mm -hmm. I think there's several reasons. One, and probably a very important one, is, is the sheer complexity of, of these events. So what you have here uh, are ethnically quite diverse territories, which later became uh, six independent states uh, after the fall of uh, Yugoslavia. And then uh, the territories themselves were just difficult to, to understand what happened when, how, and for what reason. So that, that's one. Second thing is the that the events intersected and uh, went in different directions. So somehow you couldn't make a simple narrative uh, out, out of this. As I just mentioned, Bleiburg tragedy was also an enormous tragedy, but was committed at that time by the state forces at the end of the war, so after the, the, the surrender. So it's somehow difficult to, to create a simple narrative and timeline of events. 
Second thing is also the just the number of uh, forces who were fighting on these territories. So and alliances. So you did have state forces, but then you also had militias, some supporters of the royal army who were uh, quite uh, fighting the regime, but were also adhering to fascist ideology of a different kind or supremacist ideology. So all this is, I, I understand, it's very confusing. Yeah. Second reason, I believe, is that the events that took place in 1990s, the beginning of 1990s, the war and dissolution of Yugoslavia were an enormous shock for political analysts, geostrategists, uh, and so on and so on. And they took place after a long time. So when we already thought, oh, but we learned the history, we learned the lesson of, of suffering, uh, we taught so much about the crimes of the Second World War. So it, it was somehow difficult to imagine they would, the new crimes were, were, would occur again. And then yet you did have the wars in Yugoslavia, and then you had 1994, obviously, Rwandan genocide, which were a wake-up call, uh, I believe, globally. And then the media coverage focused mostly on these events in 1990s. Whereas it, it would be <laughs> the, the former crimes were forgotten, but they were intrinsically linked to, to the later crimes, especially in this segment of collective memory, right? And finally, maybe a reason, the, the last reason that comes to my mind now would simply be the, the, the change of, of, of the focus. So this region of Southeastern Europe and the Balkans was for a while under the spotlight, and then later, simply different regions uh, became uh, the, the hotspot of, of interest. So not so much uh, is being uh, published uh, about this region anymore here and there, yes, but it's certainly not uh, the center of the interest. I believe because the conviction is that these events are not so relevant anymore. They're not so urgent. They do not require uh, immediate reaction or immediate attention. And uh, as a reply to that, I, I would really say that these, these stories that I just presented could truly offer extremely valuable and important lesson because one, they were so complex and this complexity makes them even more relevant because again, the very issue of memory and suffering and trauma and remembrance of events, it's quite complex in itself. And it's tempting to understand historical events in simple oppositions between uh, the, the victims and perpetrators. Whereas in many situations, the story goes in many different directions. It's difficult to represent. It's constantly asking us for, for new, new attention, new articulation. So th th that's an important lesson to learn. And second thing, it's also to see how one memory of suffering, which was meant to be a unifying memory, can become reappropriated in different ways. And uh, in, the, in the worst case scenario, it can also be a ground of fuel for new crimes. And this requires constant uh, ethical attention. So, so this is a wonderful book. Um, and it seems to me to represent a kind of strategy of truth-telling. Maybe not truth-telling, but accuracy telling i'm not sure that phrase works very well in english but an attempt to lay out a very carefully to use a european kind of framing scientifically artic uh, a determined and articulated view of what happened um what that that is an element of a strategy so so maybe i maybe i should reframe the question like this as as historians social scientists theologians interested in um, in trying to ensure that history doesn't become a weapon, what kind of 
how do we do that? This is one element of a strategy, but how do we try and work to prevent history from being misused in a way that creates more violence rather than less? This is a very good question. And th there's truth in this um, that, that you just said about truth telling. No pun intended again. <laughs> the, that, that truth uh, can have different meanings. And it's accurate to say that truth uh, can have different forms. Uh, and as we remember for famous South African case, they could be forensic truths, they could be a narrative truth, they can be a social truth, a community truth, but restorative truth. There are many ways of uh, phrasing the truth, right? And uh, I, I, I understand that. But at the same time, and this might sound uh, extremely uh, empirical, maybe, if, if that's a proper word, we did uh, believe that we need to have a, a, a very um, dedicated and transparent historical research based on hard historical evidence in order to help the discussion moving forward. Why? Because many forms of representing the past, and I mentioned some, do uh, represent something truthful to people. So even the number of 700,000, it's true in a sense that the tragedy was enormous, right? But if we represent truth in this way, this can easily um, contradict uh, the other forms of truth. So other forms, especially of symbolic truth telling that different groups uh, develop around their tragedy. So we believe that starting from these, well, simple empirical work uh, around real uh, concrete uh, victims and victim names and numbers would be a way of bringing those diverging views closer together. Of course, we are aware that we cannot expect that people will, uh, all people will agree on all things. That that's that will be utopian dream, but at least to create a platform around which this discussion uh, would 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 develop would would lead forward. And we are happy to say that in. This book, we had a collaboration of, on one side, two Croatian scholars uh, writing about the victims of uh, Yesenovac and Libo. And on another side, Dr. Cvetkovic, who's coming from uh, Serbia, who made independent research also about the victims of Yesenovac, which came close, quite close together. So we were kind of vindicated in this belief that this can help uh, in, in moving the discussion forward right so there was this ground belief a belief that we had another thing was the simply the threat of revisionism if we simply uh, allow the history uh, to become a, a field of discourse so any form of discourse uh, this can easily fall prey to revisionist narratives Right, because then they would simply spin uh, the the history in a certain way and say, "Well, this is our truth now," and if all truths are stay are placed on the same level, then there's really no way of adjudicating around them. And mind you, this is also ethically problematic. We co quote at some point the statement of uh, Professor Moises, who says, "Inflating victims." is extremely uh, problematic because symbolically you're killing more people. And negating victims is also extremely problematic. So you're not acknowledging them, right? And so both of them are simply the strategies we absolutely wanted to avoid, especially knowing that practically they can be employed for new crimes as a motivation, a partial motivation, clearly not clear causality is the place, but partial motivation for new crimes. So we did really start with this deep belief that we need to have this as a basis, insisting on what can be called forensic truth or well accuracy to some degree.
Aside from that, we did allow space for uh, further discussion. So we do have contributions about movies, for instance, um, about Yasenovats. And many of them which represent, represent the story of Yasenovats in different ways, as movies always do, right? Or a museological representation. So even if you do agree on some, let's call it ground truths, this still does not tell you almost anything about the representation of these events, you see. So this representation is another form of speaking about history, which is which cannot be placed in concrete numbers or, or equations, right? So this was somehow the motivation behind this. And it's also answered the question, how do we avoid this. The, one of the core beliefs that we had was really trying to establish consensus and a broader and broader consensus about the accuracy of historical findings. That's one. And second thing that we constantly insist upon is related to presentation of the tragedies, that they always need to have this empathy element or the view of the other. As soon as the narrative become closed narrative, so self-centered narrative, this can easily become exclusivist view of, of the suffering, which is suffering just for me and for my community, right? Which doesn't tell anybody else what to do. So this is not to say uh, that uh, the the uh, the way forward is universalization of every suffering without any specificities. No, no. We are, what, what I'm trying to say goes along uh, uh, Rothbard's idea of multidirectional memory. We uh, we need to start from something specific, right? If we start from universally suffering, we cannot say anything about specific suffering. If we start from specific sufferings and then make connections seeing the similarities and differences between them, we can also then eventually understand something about universal human condition, all the while being able to go back to specific suffering. And this is truly my conviction that th this is the way to, 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 to move forward. And another element that really needs to be preserved, it might sound banal, but I think it's also humbleness. Humbleness about what we can uh, say and uh, do about history. Uh, so Marie-Claire Lafabre, the French historian, uses two terms. They rhyme in French, not so much in English. Is the choice of the past, choix du passé, and the weight of the past. Uh, the choice of the past is the strategy of selecting historical periods that we decide to talk about and to learn from them. On the other hand, it's also the weight of the past because the sum events in the in the past are so uh, uh, waiting on our shoulders so much that even if we decide not to speak of them, they will still. Uh, uh, persist in collective memory. And Bleiburg perhaps is a good example. The regime decided not to speak about these events, but then they couldn't be erased. The weight of the past was simply too large. So way forward would be first to become aware of this, that we, we're not really omnipotent when it comes to the past and speaking about the past, to become aware of these differences. And then with healthy degree of humbleness, trying to build something common, some platforms that can develop a future dialogue, that can inspire, that can inspire future dialogue uh, among different participants and different subjects in different groups. Well, that's a really thoughtful answer. Thank you so much. Uh, we've reached the hour mark, so it's time to wrap up. Um, so I always ask the same question to end, which is to say, can you suggest to our listeners a book or two or movie or something that was important to you while you were thinking about these issues that, I mean, it's July, we have a tiny bit of vacation left before the academic year starts, um, something we can read or watch before we have to go back to grading papers. Sorry, there was another interruption. Yep, uh, I can hear you. Uh, you can hear me. 
Yeah, well, since this, uh, the the story you know, about the World War II on these territories is so complex, I could perhaps recommend two books. They're both in English, um, which uh, which are written in a quite accessible way, and uh, they 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 explain these complex histories. Um, in a, in a kind of easy to understand way, still scholarly books. One is uh, War and Revolution in Yugoslavia, written by Jozo Tomasevic, which is again a famous uh, publication. Another book is The Holocaust in Croatia by Ivo and uh, Slavko Goldstein. Uh, it is a bit unfortunate that the majority of publications are still published either first in Croatian or exclusively in Croatian. So th there's a significant uh, body of, uh, of scholarship, of literature, which is unfortunately still inaccessible. But those two books can be a good starting point for, for future reflection uh, and uh, future exploration and further, further reading. I will add them to my list. Sadly, I've had a lot of plain time this summer and I will have more. So um, I always get strange looks from the people who are sitting next to me as I pull out my books. And, uh, but I will add to my education. We've been talking Correct. to Stipe Odak, the, uh, one of the co-editors of Yasenovitz Concentration Camp on Unfinished Past. Stipe, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and I know you're working on a project about Rwanda when you are done with that. I hope you'll join us on the show again to talk about that book. It would be a great pleasure. Thank you, Kelly, for having me.